This is episode 13 of Functional First Podcast, where we speak with leading experts in the field of functional health. I'm Katie Yamamoto from Functional Media, and today I'm speaking with physiotherapist Carolyn Van Dyken about the myths and facts of pelvic health. Thank you for letting us interview you today. Can we start with a background of yourself and what got you involved in pelvic health? Awesome. Uh, my name is Carolyn Van Dyken, and I graduated from McMaster in 1986, so just a couple years ago. I, from graduation, have pretty much practiced in orthopedics, and uh, my background sort of orthopedically, I did all my short manual courses, and I became, I did all my McKenzie courses, credentialed in the McKenzie system, and started my own practice in Cambridge in uh, 2009. And so about a year or two after that, I was really starting to struggle. I was a basketball player. I started to struggle with my own incontinence. So I was about 35 at that time. And when my first was born, when I was 25, he was a big baby, almost 10 pounds. He was born in Northern Ontario. So probably in Southern Ontario would have had a C-section, but in Northern Ontario, not a choice. So I delivered him vaginally. And he uh, played quite a number in my pelvic floor. And so I really, you know, developed some stress incontinence over the, the birth of three children vaginally. And so by the time I was 35, I was having a significant stress incontinence problem. So I decided I either needed to do something about it or go have surgery. So I knew these courses were out there. And so I decided to, to take a course. And so I went off to Women's College Hospital and did my first course with Marie-Jose uh, Lord, who was certainly my mentor in all of this. And, you know, got to the course and didn't realize that we were going to do internals on each other. So got to the course and went, oh, this is interesting. <laughs> Thought, okay, I can do this. I'm here. So away we went. And by the third day of the course, I was, I was comfortable enough to be the uh, model for the STEM lab. So here I am up on the table, eight physios gathered round. Marie-José inserted a vaginal probe and turned on the STEM unit. And my pelvic floor contracted for the first time in 10 years. Okay. And so I walked away from that course. And so what was really different was it was a completely different contraction than I thought it was going to be. And so, you know, it was very rectal, which we're always told doing a Kegel is like stopping a midstream urine, but really the pelvic floor is both rectal and vaginal. And so I kind of walked away from that course thinking, okay, I'm a physio. I have pretty good kinesthetic sense. I've taught Kegels for, you know, probably 13 or 14 years at that point. And if I couldn't get it, how many patients can? So that really is what started me down this road. So I've been doing it now for about 20 years. So I was about 10 or 11 years into my practice at that point. And I decided that, you know, if I didn't get this and, and women were struggling, that there was more to be done than just sort of handing them a sheet of paper and saying, you know, contract your pelvic floor. Good luck with that. So that's kind of how I got down this road. And can you describe what you do as a pelvic health physio? Okay. Uh, so as a pelvic health physiotherapist, I'm really an orthopedic therapist. So my background is orthopedics. Uh, pelvic health is really just orthopedics in a cave. All the same principles that apply to orthopedics apply to pelvic health. And so I, I treat the whole person. I treat the whole body. But really at this point, because I'm quite specialized, most people don't get to see me unless they specifically have a pelvic health problem. And so I'm going to screen the low back. I'm going to screen the hips. Um, I'm going to do a biopsychosocial assessment. I'm going to look at all their distress factors and what's going on because pelvic pain specifically has a lot of sort of 
fears and threats sort of associated with why our pelvises get um, sort of upregulated or overactive to begin with. And so you really need to kind of take a whole centered approach, which is why I've kind of gotten more into the central sensitization piece as well. But essentially, it's, it's a regular sort of orthopedic screen, but then we also do an internal exam. And there's a lot of myths surrounding pelvic health. So I want to go through some of those and get your thoughts on those. Um, So one of them is that pelvic rehab is mainly for during or after pregnancy. Right. Okay. So certainly we struggle with pelvic floor problems at at different times in our life. And they tend to be times of of big transition. So for young girls, uh, painful periods uh, is a time again where where we start to struggle with some pelvic floor function. And again, pain with periods is not normal. And staying home a day uh, a week or a day a month from school uh, with pain because of period pain is not normal either. So that's a time when when girls start to struggle. And then women struggle certainly around prenatal and postpartum sort of issues. And then women tend to struggle again in menopausal years. So those are sort of three main areas. But really, pelvic floor dysfunction kind of happens throughout the lifespan and is much more uh, about than just having babies and stretching muscles and and putting the load through the pelvic floor that way. And is pelvic physio mainly for women? Right, great question. No. In fact, we all have pelvic floors. Men have pelvic floors and women have pelvic floors and children have pelvic floors. So these are just muscles. So if you think about muscles throughout the body, the purpose of muscle function is to move our bodies, right? Without muscles, we would really be a bag of bones. And so the pelvic floor muscles are no different, except that these muscles have five major functions. So the pelvic floor muscles are responsible for movement of the pelvis, the legs, the the trunk. So typical sort of muscle function. Pelvic floor muscles also keep us continent, so bowel function and bladder function. Pelvic floor muscles also help with sexual function. So without pelvic floor muscles, we wouldn't uh, orgasm or have erections for men. Pelvic floor muscles also keep our organs inside, so very important from a prolapse perspective. And they also help with keeping circulation or getting circulation back from the legs to the trunk. So the pelvic floor muscles really have five major functions, and yet they are the most ignored muscles in the body. So men have pelvic floors, women have pelvic floors, children have pelvic floors, and we all have trouble with these muscles. So it's not just a female problem. And is pelvic rehab all about the pelvic floor? No. So again, um, I have a really good friend, Sandra Hilton, who has done a lot of sort of co-authoring with me, and she likes to say there's not a dotted line between the pubic symphysis and the ischial tuberosities, that it's sort of a separate area and that just certain therapists should be sort of considering those muscles. So the pelvic floor is part of the whole system. It's part of the, the respiratory system. It's part of the core muscles. So I think all of us as physiotherapists or rehab specialists, whether you're a physio or a chiro, we all deal with the pelvic floor, but we don't necessarily address it. Does that make sense? So, mm-hmm. so we're all interacting with it, interfacing with it, but we're not necessarily addressing it. Are Kegels the main exercise in pelvic rehab? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> to Kegel or not to Kegel, that is the question, right? And so it's really interesting. We just have finished a study uh, looking at women who were referred to orthopedic practice for low back pain. And what we know from a lot of historical studies that have been done up to this point, we know that there's a comorbidity between low back pain and pelvic floor dysfunction. And so uh, what we know with that group is that um, it is very common to have pelvic floor problems. The assumption has always been made in orthopedic practice is that the pelvic floors are weak, 
right? Core, the core is weak, the pelvic floor is weak. And so Kegels have been kind of the go-to exercise. So what, what really the study has shown, so we, we were able to recruit 100 women. And what we looked at specifically was the percentage of those women who were referred for low back pain, how many of them had pelvic floor problems? 96%, okay? So this is the first study that's been done internationally that's actually then included a, a palpation or internal exam of the pelvic floor. And so what our exam has shown is that 84% of those women are over-recruiting their pelvic floor. They're overactive, kind of like tight, tight shoulder muscles, right? If we get, if we have tension headaches, then we know that there's often tension in the cervical muscles and we'll see tension when we palpate or we'll see restricted range of motion. The same thing is true for the pelvic floor. And so one of the things that we know is that the pelvic floor is very susceptible to stress and tension, just like the cervical sort of headaches are as well. And so with back pain, we will see problems of over-recruitment, over-activity. So if we give those women Kegels, what's going to happen? They're going to get tighter. They're going to get more tender, more, more painful. And so that's not the solution. We really need to think about, are they overactive or are they weak? Kegels are great if they're weak, but not if they're overactive. So many women who don't have any pelvic floor issues think that they should be doing Kegels. Right. So is that the case? So great question. It depends on how they define pelvic floor problems, right? And so again, we don't associate problems like pain with intercourse as a pelvic floor problem. And in fact, most physiotherapists, most physicians don't even screen for sexual dysfunction, right? We are just uh, teaching a course right now, actually, uh, looking at uh, how to talk to patients and how to ask patients and assess patients with sexual dysfunction. And studies have shown that 3% of physicians ask about sexual function. Although it's an activity of daily living and it's a normal activity of daily living, uh, we as a healthcare system don't really assess that piece very, very specifically. So, so certainly... Women who have pain with sex probably shouldn't be doing Kegels. In all likelihood, they're overactive. Uh, women who have an overactive bladder, so women who have, oh, I really have to go to the bathroom, I can hardly make it there. They think well, I should do Kegels, that'll help strengthen my pelvic floor. In fact, a lot of those women, or the majority of those women, are also over-recruiting their pelvic floor. So Kegels are probably important for women who have a prolapse and who maybe have stress incontinence where they cough, laugh, sneeze, jump, run, and they leak. It might be important for those women, but not necessarily for many other women who have other sorts of problems. So it's really about finding out what the problem is before we prescribe an exercise. And can you discuss the different types of incontinence? Uh, so there's four main types of incontinence. One is called stress incontinence. And stress incontinence, we kind of think about being stressed, but it's actually putting physical stress on our pelvic floor. So when we cough, laugh, jump, sneeze, and we leak, that's because our intra-abdominal pressure creates more pressure than our pelvic floor resistance can, and we will lose a little bit of urine. So stress incontinence is characterized by a preceding physical activity that causes a little bit of urine leakage. Urge incontinence is when we have an overwhelming urge to go to the bathroom, and we can't make it there before we start leaking, so that's urge incontinence. Overflow incontinence is when you have a neurogenic bladder, so that's sort of a more of an upper motor neuron problem, and or cotequina syndrome, which we're all very familiar with as orthopedic therapists, where we're not getting that autonomic overflow to the sphincter of the bladder where it's opening and releasing to allow the urine to come out. So then the bladder just expands, 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 and then just starts to drip 
drip, drip, drip. Okay, so that's an overflow problem. And then we can have mixed incontinence, which is stress and urge incontinence together, which is pretty common as a category. Again, many women think that it's normal after pregnancy or children to have a little bit of incontinence, right. to dribble when they jump. Right. And is that normal? No, no. So again, common is very different than normal. So it's very common. One in three to one in four women struggle with incontinence. So it's normal that way, but it's not normal. It means that there's a dysfunction, there's a problem. And unfortunately, the statistic right now says, so these are uh, Canadian Continent Society st statistics that say 50% of us will end our life in diapers. So one out of two of us. And it's because as a society, we are not taking care of these very important muscles. And that was going to be my next oh, question. Gosh. Is incontinence normal as you age? So again, it's common. Right? It's kind of one of those myths. So it's very common. Uh, so we look at women, uh, one in four women leak. And by the time we get to be over 60, one in three women leak. Again, it's the, one of the number one reasons for nursing home placement is that kids can't handle their parents' incontinence. So then one in two people in a nursing home or as we age have incontinence. So very common, not normal. Men, a little bit less in the incontinence department. So they tend to have about one in nine men are incontinent more related to probably post-prostatectomies, so it's not just a female problem. Um, male pelvic pain is actually much more common. It's sort of one in five or one in six men, and I think that's significantly underreported as well. Can pelvic rehab be done at any age? Yeah, so as long as the client is cognitively aware, for sure, um, so even as you get much older, as long as there's no dementia and you can follow instructions, I mean, I have rehabbed many sort of elderly patients in their 80s and 90s, so the, the upper age limit is not a factor. Pelvic floor therapy for pediatrics is becoming more and more common. Um, we don't tend to do internal work as much with pediatrics. It tends to be more external biofeedback and a lot of behavioral management and, and training that way. And what are the benefits of pelvic rehabilitation? The benefits are incredible. I mean, they really go through the whole sort of uh, span of, of sort of function. So there are many patients who I have seen who have been married, for example, for a couple of years and never been able to consummate their marriage, right? And never been able to be sexually active because of pain. And so to watch those women then become sexually active and, and be able to integrate that into their relationship is, is really satisfying. And especially often women start to find help at that point because they want to have a baby, right? So again, being able to help with that sort of fertility component. Not that I'm a fertility therapist, but if you're not having sex, you can't be fertile, right? And so that, that becomes a problem. Orthopedic function. So patients who have low back pain and hip pain, again, a strong correlation between pelvic floor problems and those sorts of problems. One of the things we need to recognize is that low back pain is the number one cause of disability worldwide, and it's getting worse year by year. The costs of low back pain are increasing. So despite a lot of effort and energy on multidisciplinary sort of approaches, I think there's two main problems. One is that we're not addressing pelvic floor dysfunction. So that's a biological contributor to, to hip pain and back pain. And the second is we're not taking a biopsychosocial approach to low back pain. We're trying to treat it like a biomedical problem. And if you look at Peter O'Sullivan's work and a lot of the work of uh, a large group of Australian and particularly European researchers and some of the folks down in Florida, like uh, Chris Maine and Stephen George, for example, we're really starting to show that low back pain is a problem of stress and tension, right? And we need to take a much broader approach. But the pelvic floor 
also responds to stress and tension. So there was a great study done in 2001 by Vanderveld that showed that if you put EMG sensors over a woman's body and you show some very frightening film to, that, to, to women, before we blink or move away, our pelvic floors tighten. Okay, so we are biologically hardwired to protect our pelvises. Think about it, kind of makes sense. Procreation, survival of species, sexual function, bladder function, so many important things happen in our pelvic floors that we are hardwired to actually protect that area. So if we think low back pain is a problem with stress and tension, pelvic pain goes hand in hand with that problem. What common conditions do pelvic health physios treat? Okay, great question. So obviously the incontinence pieces, I think we've kind of talked about that as well. Um, prolapse, so pelvic organ prolapse, which is not the organs falling through the pelvic floor, but the organs pushing the vagina inside out, basically, is sort of what a pelvic organ prolapse is. And it's due to poorly managed pressures in the interabdominal cavity, weak pelvic floors, and a combination of those things. You don't have to have had children to have a pelvic organ prolapse. So that's also a common myth that you can only get a, a prolapse if you've had children. Pelvic pain is probably the biggest area, and there's many conditions associated with pelvic pain that physiotherapists address that I would say most orthopedic therapists don't even screen their patients for. So irritable bowel syndrome, the pain associated with that is very interconnected with what's happening in the pelvic floor. Chronic constipation, Crohn's disease, so those are sort of the bowel pieces, and you're looking at all the V diagnoses. So vulvodynia, which is pain in the vulva, vaginismus, which is vaginal spasm, not allowing penetration, vestibulodynia, which is pain at the entrance of the vagina, then you have the bladder-specific conditions, which are interstitial cystitis or bladder pain syndrome, overactive bladder, all kinds of sexual pain, sort of dysfunction. So those are sort of the main categories, I would say. And are there any conditions that you treat that people might be surprised by that aren't as common? Yeah, so I think probably what surprises people the most, and again, you can even sort of see by the ones I just described, is the male pelvic pain pieces. So testicular pain and penile pain chronic prostatitis, which is not an, uh, a chronic inflammation of the prostate. In fact, Jeanette Potts, who's a urologist in uh, California, did a nice talk about two years ago at the International Pelvic Pain Conference. The title of her talk was The Prostate Has Been Framed, right? And so pelvic floor is the main problem in pelvic pain conditions, or one of the, the major contributors to pelvic pain conditions, and yet the organs have sort of been typically kind of assessed and, and treated with antibiotics, that sort of thing. So I think most people don't realize that male pelvic pain is pretty common and has quite a devastating effect. And unfortunately, men have kind of been in the backseat with regards to pelvic rehab. Um, this is probably the one area of, of rehab and medicine that men are behind women, right? Normally, for if you look at pain conditions in general, um, more women suffer from persistent pain than men. And yet there's more research on male, on male pain generally than female pain. But this area specifically, it's the flip, it's the reverse. What anatomy is important to consider when discussing pelvic dysfunction? I, I think you need to look at the pelvic girdle, you need to look at low back pain, you need to look at the pelvic floor itself, you need to decide whether or not things are overactive or tight or things are weak. You need to look at posture. I mean, you really need to look at the person and I would also challenge orthopedic therapists who are looking at the person to not forget the pelvic floor. 
What are some red flags that may be different to normal MSK red flags in the pelvic region? You know, I, th I think they're not different. I think they're pretty similar overall. I think you have to be more aware of the interplay of the viscera and the organs with the pelvic floor. And so that's something that you need to be able to sort of determine, you know, if there's an infection that you may need to send them back for that, whether a bladder infection or a uterine or a vaginal infection. So looking at things a little bit more that way. But otherwise, I would say the red flags are pretty much the same. And you were saying that it's important for non-pelvic health clinicians to screen for any pelvic dysfunction. Right. Are there any specific questions that you think should be mandatory yeah, in a subjective for sure, exam? For sure. So I'm going to say two things here. I'll, I'll give you the list of things that I think everyone needs to be screened for. And then I'll just sort of make a note that we're actually doing a study right now with McMaster looking at validating a screening questionnaire for orthopedic pa uh, therapists for patients who have hip and low back pain. So the main questions are, do you leak when you don't want to? So do you, do you uh, lose urine or stool at any time when you don't want to? That's the first question. And, and then I think orthopedic therapists need to start to understand the different types of incontinence and how they play out. So continence is one. Bowel function, so specifically constipation. If you have a patient who is chronically constipated, you can guarantee that there's a pelvic floor problem happening there. So do you have chronic constipation? Do you have painful periods? If you have a woman, um, so if she has painful periods, again, very highly correlated with pelvic floor dysfunction. Do you have pain with intercourse? So both men and women, if there's pain during or after intercourse, that's not normal. And again, it's highly correlated with pelvic floor dysfunction. For women as well, you can screen by asking, do you have trouble putting or using a tampon, putting in a tampon? That would, that would be problematic. Uh, do you feel any heaviness or pressure in your vagina? Uh, when you exercise or when you walk, that sort of thing. That goes away when you lie down. And that would be indicative of a prolapse. Those are sort of the main ones. Okay. And are there any objective tests that should be done? Um, so by orthopedic therapists mm -hmm. specifically? So it's interesting. There was a study done by Cynthia Neville in 2012. A group of Chicago physiotherapists and neurogynecologists looked at identifying musculoskeletal tests that could be used to um, identify women with chronic pelvic pain. And so they did a series of nine musculoskeletal tests. They did a double-blind study. And what they found was that two orthopedic tests could 100% identify women who had chronic pelvic pain. And that is a positive force favor and tenderness on pelvic floor palpation. So again, most orthopedic therapists are not qualified to do the internal palpation because they've not done that piece. But if you use the screening questionnaire, for example, like, um, you know, do you have pain with intercourse and are you chronically constipated and are you losing urine? If you answer one to any of those questions, then there's a pelvic floor problem. If you have a positive force favor with that, then you're going to start to start to think, I need to consider the pelvic floor and I need to consider whether it's overactive or weak and how is that going to play out in my treatment plan. Do all pelvic floor assessments include an internal exam? I would say the majority of them do because we want to know what's happening in the pelvic floor. So one of the things that I like to talk to orthopedic therapists about, and I've had this discussion with the college as well, is that there is no other area of the body that physiotherapists treat that they don't assess before they treat. 
right? So it would be a bit like, you know, on Monday morning going back to the office and assessing a knee, you know, an acute, uh, let's say, MCL sprain that happened over the weekend, and you don't take off the patient's jeans, right? And you don't even touch them. You just kind of look at the knee and see how they're moving, and then you give them some exercises, right? That would be malpractice. I mean, that would be something that we certainly could get a complaint against the college for. Um, but in, physio- in, in pelvic floor physiotherapy, somehow that's become the accepted norm, right? That we're just trying to guess what's going on in the pelvic floor and we don't assess first. So there, I think, are things that external PTs can do. And uh, I think there are ways to address the pelvic floor quite effectively. One of the, the gals that I really like her work from the States is Julie Weeb. And she teaches a great uh, course called the Piston Course on training orthopedic therapists to consider and use the pelvic floor in retraining for low back pain and hip pain. So I think there's lots of places to start, but we need to identify, first of all, that there's a pelvic floor problem. So we're hoping that with the validation tool that we're creating at this point, that therapists are going to start to become more keen to at least assess pelvic floor dysfunction up front. Do you assess breathing in your assessment? Absolutely, yeah. So again, if you look at the whole concept that the diaphragm and the pelvic floor are just either ends of the piston, and uh, there's a lot that you can do with the pelvic floor if you think it's overactive with just using the breath and, and normalizing some of their breathing patterns to start to get some relaxation in the pelvic floor. And... Are issues like that common in men as well? Very common. So the other thing that really, I mean, I, I made me think of it when you said men, but it's true for men and women. I've seen a lot of my male patients with pelvic pain often tend to have a six-pack muscle. They have high-stress jobs. They're lawyers on Bay Street, that kind of thing. And they have a high level of fitness. And I now have sort of coined the saying, show me a six-pack, I'll show you a tight pelvic floor. Okay, And so what you'll also see with those folks is that they don't have that nice diaphragmatic breath. And so their diaphragm is tight, their pelvic floor is tight, and everything's just not moving particularly well. How about in weightlifters and people who use the Valsalva maneuver when they are working? Right. So again, teaching weightlifters to to kind of blow as you go. That's a a Julie Weed term, okay? And Anthony Lowe, the the physio detective from Australia, if you follow any of his work, he will use the same sort of terminology. So again, teaching uh, weightlifters, heavy weightlifters, to use their pelvic floors to manage their pressures within their intra-abdominal space can be very effective. So considering the pelvic floor needs to be a really important piece. You know, I I did a course with Peter O'Sullivan in San Diego in February at San Diego Pain Summit. And, you know, he said it's really interesting given that the fact that we we know that low back pain is now a problem of too much tension, too much overprotection. You know, how did we ever get sold this, this myth of core stability where all we're doing is creating more tension, right? And so for weightlifters too, if we're making them really rigid and holding on to sort of just their... TA specifically, you know, we can do a Stu McGill and just really kind of draw in our abdominal wall and kind of uh, tighten everything up. What we're doing, the, the pressure has to go somewhere. So the pressure goes down to the pelvic floor. And so we, we seem to do much better to manage those pressures when we use the pelvic floor to manage them versus the TA. So what are your thoughts on weightlifting belts or SI belts and mm. things that add that external tension? Right, right. I'm not going to give you my thoughts on external weight lifting belts because I would say that's not my area of expertise. I would probably defer that to Anthony Lowe or Julie Weeb. And I just haven't done enough work in that patient population to give you a really good answer on that. 
but I will give you an answer on the SI belts. And so the evidence, uh, Susan Clinton's group, um, certainly in, in the States for the APTA and the Section of Women's Health, have just looked at sort of clinical practice guidelines for pregnancy in 2016, and they have showed that uh, belts have level F evidence, so not good evidence. I can't remember the last time I prescribed a belt uh, for my pregnant patients, and so it's more about managing sort of symmetry or balance in the pelvis and uh, normalizing pelvic floor function, and really belts don't have a lot of evidence. So if I have, if I have a, you know, 36-week pregnant woman who's got four weeks to go and and she's having some trouble at that stage, I might put her into a belt for a very short period of time. But generally speaking, I would say belts are not the solution for pelvic girdle pain. And what are common pelvic physio exercises? Common pelvic floor physio exercises. So again, it depends if, if tension is the problem or weakness is the problem. Kegels still form the basis of pelvic floor strengthening. Certainly, the Europeans have done a great job. Carrie Bow, I, I can definitely put her up out there as a researcher who has spent the last 30 years doing a lot of research on pelvic floor training. And so for weakness, we have level one evidence. We have two Cochrane reviews that support doing 30 repetitions of pelvic floor exercises per day for a short period of time to train the pelvic floor. And so we're going to use that type of approach very much uh, physiological sort of uh, stiffening or strengthening of those muscles for incontinence and for prolapse, okay? For pain, really what we need to do is to relax the pelvic floor. So we may do some manual therapy. Uh, one of my favorite go-to exercises is certainly cat-cow, where we're really working on getting patients to visualize the length of their pelvic floor between their pubic bone and their tailbone in the cow position, for example. I'll get them to do cat-cow in all kinds of different positions. Optrator internus is a external hip rotator that lies completely within the ilium and the obturator foramen. The tendon of the obturator internus goes posterior to the ischial tuberosity and inserts onto the trochanter. And so it is the sidewall muscle of the pelvis that the pelvic floor suspends from. So think about the pelvic floor like a suspension bridge. And so the obturator internus is a comorbid problem with pelvic floor dysfunction. We see pelvic floor tightness, we see obturator internus tightness. And obturator internus tightness can create trochanteric pain, pelvic girdle pain, SI joint pain, low back pain, pain down the back of the legs. So a stretch for the obturator internus is one of my other go-tos for sure. And then I do a lot of relaxation exercises, a lot of work on breathing and a lot of work on just down-regulating the system. So is a treatment for pelvic pain similar to other areas of the body? Yeah, the principles are really the same, right? And, you know, in pelvic pain, because what I talked about with the Vanderbilt study in 2001, because this is intuitively an area that we protect, one of the things that we really need to recognize in pelvic pain is that we have to take a biopsychosocial perspective. You need to start looking at their distress factors. Are they depressed? Are they anxious? Are they stressed? Are they catastrophizing? Are they fear avoidant? And that then has to build into our treatment program as well. So, I mean, I don't think we can treat any persistent pain anymore without taking a biopsychosocial perspective and in pelvic pain, it's, it's paramount. And do you see more persistent or acute cases? Of Definitely persistent, yeah. So again, on average, pelvic floor dysfunction as a component of pelvic pain like vulvodynia and vaginismus over the last, I mean, I've been practicing in this area for 20 years. 
over the last five to seven years, we've seen this explosion of research and connection with pelvic floor components and pelvic floor physiotherapy as part of those what were more considered medical problems in the past. So we definitely are looking at sort of the connections with that. And I've lost the rest of the question. Uh, more persistent or acute. Ah, right. Okay. So again, most women are really struggling to find help. Okay. So if they have bladder pain syndrome or they have vulvodynia or vaginismus, most women have seen five to eight doctors before they can even get an answer or a diagnosis. And uh, so they struggle. And so most of my women are persistent. I just actually moved recently to Muskoka. And so I'm, I'm the only therapist in Muskoka right now doing this type of work. And so it's been interesting because now I get to see sort of pelvic girdle pain in, in acute sort of pregnant women and stuff. And I, in Cambridge, where I worked for 20 years, I wasn't seeing those sorts of patients anymore because I was seeing definitely more of the complex people. But I think that's true of most pelvic pain therapists. And in your article on sexual pain, the average length to diagnosis was eight years. Mm -hmm. And is that delay due to patients not reporting their sexual pain or it being under-recognized by healthcare providers? Yeah, I think it's a bit of both. But if I had to guess, it's more under-recognition, right? And, or it's dismissal. You know, you've got pain with sex. Have a glass of wine. Relax. It'll be okay not the answer, right? They're not just worried about this problem. There's a physical structural issue uh, in the pelvic floor or hormonally. And then stress starts to impact it. And when you have pain, of course, you start to avoid things. And so that complicates the situation, but it's not often the primary cause. And so I think it's it's often under recognition or it's dismissal. And then it's it's, again, it's a personal and private area. And we don't make it normal in our culture to talk about sexual function. And so who do you go to, right? Who do you talk to about it? And that becomes a problem. I know that you have an acupuncture certification. Yeah. And yeah. do you find acupuncture useful in treating pelvic pain? Right. It's interesting. So the more I develop my skills in central pain mechanisms and looking at a biopsychosocial perspective, the less I use acupuncture. I did my uh, certification in 2002, and, and I recognize now that I did it for my complex patients. I did it for my patients who were, at that point, although I wouldn't have used that terminology, who were centrally sensitized, right? And I, I just couldn't, the mechanical stuff that I was doing wasn't enough. And so that was great. It changed my practice completely. And then in 2008, I took a course by Debbie Patterson called Women in Pain, and she turned me on to pain science. Right? In 2010, I was lucky enough to go to the neurodynamic conference that David Butler put on in, in Nottingham, England, 2012. In Adelaide, we were able to present on pelvic pain at that conference. And uh, that really started my journey down sort of the pain road and looking at a biopsychosocial perspective and really treating the person as a whole. So since I've been doing that, I rarely pull out my acupuncture needles anymore. And it's not that I'm anti-acupuncture. The issue really is, is where we have evidence to treat our patients in is self-efficacy. One of our goals in persistent pain must be to teach patients how to care for themselves. And acupuncture doesn't do that. Right? So I, I'm more interested in teaching patients how to calm their own nervous systems down than me to do something to them that they can't mimic. And you said that you use some neurodynamic tests. What 
specific ones. Yeah, so so it's interesting, you know, when, when we were at the 2010 Neurodynamic Conference in Nottingham and we were just being sort of blown away by all the work done at that point on you know, sort of mirror work and, and uh, laterality. And, and so a couple of us pelvic floor therapists went up to David and said, you know, how do we apply this to the pelvic floor? And he's like, you know what, I have no idea. Go figure it out. That was his answer. And so we did, right? So Sandra Hilton and I got together and we started to figure out how do we apply this to the pelvic floor? And then in 2012, there was enough of a shift of interest in pelvic health that there was actually a podium speaker at the 2012 Neurodynamic Conference. And then we did two workshops. Sandy and I did one and Trish Newman did one as well. So now interest was building, which was interesting. There's another reason I think that interest was building. And that was in 2011, there was a, a government paper, a white paper published in, the, in Australia called The $800 Million Girl and the $6 Billion Woman. That's the cost of pelvic pain in Australia every single year. So all of a sudden the government and the Minister of Health was interested in pelvic pain because it was a huge uh, societal issue at that point. We really, what you have to recognize with the pelvis is that we can't do the same sorts of things that we do in the joints where we have a left and a right. And so um, one of the issues though around pelvic pain is that we don't have a good map of our pelvic floors, particularly women, we can't see things. And so doing some mirror work, just getting patients to recognize and own their parts may be part of it. And then in the NOI curriculum, the, the nerves that are not covered really are the iliohypogastric, the ilioinguinal, the pudendal nerve, which is a nerve that supplies the pelvic floor. And so uh, we've really just started to incorporate a little bit more sort of pelvic girdle mobilization. The pudendal nerve is not a nerve that has a lot of excursion, like some of the upper extremity and lower extremity nerve pathways. And so the best way probably to get at it is to do a deep squat at the sink and then to maybe do some, some neck flexion and extension along with sort of using your breath into the pelvic floor. So there's some ways to get in, but uh, it's definitely more challenging. And is there any specific equipment that you use in assessment or treatment? My fingers are my biggest tool. Um, and I was blessed with long fingers and long hands. That's good. Um, sometimes I'll joke with new physiotherapists and they've got short little fingers. And I'll say, well, you'll just have to work a little harder to get deeper. Um, so, so there's not a lot of tools. So as a physiotherapist, um, your hands are your, your best tools. We, when I started in this work 20 years ago, we all went out and purchased a biofeedback unit, you know, pretty expensive units, and we did a lot of biofeedback because that was sort of the standard of practice at that point. What we know about biofeedback is if you have a short, tight pelvic floor, it can be electrically silent, so it doesn't necessarily pick it up. So your fingers really are your best tools. They can pick up tension, they can pick up weakness and strength. You measure strength objectively using the same Oxford muscle testing scale that we use anywhere else in the body. There's very little else that you need, so it's a pretty simple practice to set up that way. And how important is, do you think, a multidisciplinary approach is when treating the pelvic floor? Yeah, it's, it's huge, right? Because remember I said pelvic pain is a problem of the biopsychosocial system. And so as physiotherapists, I think we can start to look at distress. We can start to, to understand and, and assess anxiety and depression. We can't diagnose it. I think we can aim, direct our treatments towards some of those things like you know, if a patient has high depression scores, I might pick yoga, for example, as a means into their nervous system because yoga's got some great evidence in, in helping with depression, for example. But I am going to work with a psychologist. I'm going to work with a sex therapist. 
Um, I'm going to work with the urologist. I'm going to work with the gynecologist for the hormonal component. So this is very much a multidisciplinary effort. And do you think other healthcare professionals are beginning to recognize the value of pelvic health, physio, and yeah. rehab? Referring more? Right, absolutely, 100%. So again, have done this for 20 years. Uh, in 2009, I actually decided to sell my practice because at that point, I was the only pelvic floor therapist from Toronto to Owen Sound to Windsor to St. Catharines, sort of in that it's a pretty big catchment area. And uh, at that point, there was about five pelvic floor therapists. That was only seven or eight years ago. There's five pelvic floor therapists in Ontario doing this with any sort of seriousness. And so I sold my practice and my hope was to develop pelvic health within some LifeMark clinics to at least start that way. And then I was lucky enough to have met Nellie Fagani, my teaching partner at Pelvic Health Solutions. And so her and I really started a teaching company. And so at this point, we've trained, I think there's well over 500 pelvic floor therapists rostered in Ontario now, which is fantastic. And so first of all, we have the base of therapists. Second of all, we have really good research. So we have two Cochrane collaborations that show level one grade A evidence that pelvic floor physiotherapy for incontinence, both urge and stress, is the number one choice prior to surgery. We've got some good randomized control trials around pelvic floor physiotherapy for prolapse. We've got a good randomized control trial for pelvic floor physiotherapy helping with bladder pain syndrome and IC. You know, in the States, the NIDDK, which is the funding association for IC and bladder pain, as of 2012, had spent $100 million on research for bladder pain. And the study that Rhonda Cotterinos and Dr. Fitzgerald did and published in 2012 was the first study in bladder pain and IC that actually showed a positive effect. So doing pelvic floor physiotherapy was effective in 59% of cases. And my only issue with that study is that it was a very biomedical study, which we know doesn't work with pelvic pain. We need to take a biopsychosocial perspective. So 59% improvement is fantastic and better than anything that's been seen to date. But what happened to the other 41%, right? And so if we take a, a broader biopsychosocial perspective, we really have a great treatment effect with these patients, and it's, it's very satisfying. And the, and the referral sources are really starting to recognize that. Are there any areas that you think there should be more research done in that you'd like to see? Yeah, certainly men. My, my first answer to that would be men. We need, men need to catch up in this area, and it needs to be normalized for men that, that this is a problem, and they have pelvic floors, and it creates problems for them as well. It would be nice to have as much um, time and energy put into educating men about the function of their muscles as it is to promoting Viagra and Cialis on primetime television for erectile dysfunction. For women, the pain conditions, so I see bladder pain syndrome, those are patients that really uh, speak to my heart because their quality of life is, is worse than end-stage renal failure, right, where they're on dialysis. And so those are, are women particularly who are really struggling. Um, there's a high suicide rate among those women. And so we need more research and better research um, definitely in those pain conditions. And for someone not familiar with pelvic physio, can you explain the patient experience when visiting a pelvic health specialist? Sure. Uh, so a pelvic health specialist is going to uh, take a thorough history. First of all, uh, we, we send quite a thorough screening sort of questionnaire. We measure everything um, on the screening questionnaire from depression, anxiety, stress, catastrophization. So expect to sort of 
you know, sort of fill out a lot of sort of paperwork, we give it to them ahead of time so that they can take their time and bring it in. Most of my patients will comment afterwards that that was the most thorough assessment that they've received in a long time. And they're really grateful that, that they were asked all these sort of detailed questions and they had a chance to tell their story. So that's the first part. The second part for most people in pain, the, the first assessment might be just a lot of talking. There's a lot of sort of history to get through and understanding of what sort of the drivers are of that problem. May or may not get to a, a public floor screen at the first visit. Um, certainly going to do a thorough musculoskeletal screen looking at low back uh, function, hip function, posture, all of those sorts of things. And then finally doing an internal assessment. Um, we use one finger uh, or two fingers, sometimes vaginally. We're very gentle, very careful. We are not looking to recreate pain. We're just noting uh, sort of what the, the tension is like. And we always emphasize with our patients that they're in charge, that they're in control. Again, being very sensitive to our patients who've had trauma or, or other negative experiences, maybe with other medical professionals with regards to maybe pap exams, that sort of thing. And so we go really slow and, and really just take it easy. And we are not interested in creating pain. I think that's the thing I always emphasize. And you've discussed an internal component to the assessment. Is that true for treatment as well? Yeah. So again, we want to get a sense of what's happening in the pelvic floor. I would say for most of my patients, most visits include some form of an internal just to kind of monitor our progress. The good stuff is really done at home. It's what they're doing with their exercises and their breathing and their relaxation techniques. And then I'm going to check in with their muscles to see how they're responding. And I might do some manual therapy. It'll be very gentle. Again, we're not looking to recreate the pain experience because their brain is already very good at protecting them. And so we don't want to give their brain more reasons to protect them. And how do you explain pelvic pain to a patient? Hmm. I, I think the biggest issue with pelvic pain that patients need to understand is that it's, it's a complex process. So in other words, often they've started with one problem and then they get multiple problems. So these are often patients who have irritable bowel complaints, for example, irritable bowel syndrome, and then they have chronic bladder irritation or they have painful periods. And so one of the things that patients need to understand is that all of those areas in the pelvis talk to each other in the in the spinal cord. We call it in the dorsal horn, right? And that's really important because in normal function, we don't want to pee when we orgasm. We don't want to orgasm when we pee. And when we jump up and down, we want, don't want to do either of those things, right? And so all of that coordination has to happen in the spinal cord. The problem is, is that when one of those structures starts to get sensitized, because they talk and communicate in the spinal cord, the other organs tend to get sensitized as well. So that is one of the reasons why we start to see complex pelvic pain. The other reason is that there's something called the visceral-somatic reflex and the somatovisceral reflex. And I explain this to my patients in these terms all the time. So these studies have been done on rats. They haven't been done on people, but they've been around for 20 years. And yet I would say that most of us in physiotherapy and in medicine are not taught sort of some of this basic science research. And that is that when the bladder is inflamed and irritated, so if they take uh, a viral agent and they put that viral agent into a rat's bladder along with blue dye, that blue dye travels or extravasates into the connective tissue and to the muscles of all of the tissues between the knees and the rib cage. So inner thighs, outer thighs, pelvic floor, glutes, diaphragm, abdominal wall. And so what happens is if you have a bad bladder infection, bladder infection, your muscles are gonna get tight and sensitized, right? And then the bladder infection goes away. 
but now you've got pain. You're thinking, where did that come from? Why did that start that way? The reverse is true as well. If you've got tight muscles, so now you're really stressed, right? And you've got tight muscles. If they put a pseudorabies virus in a rat's tail with blue dye, in two days that blue dye has traveled into the rat's bladder. So now I've got burning irritation of my bladder. I, it burns when I pee and it feels like I have a bladder infection. But you go to the doctor and you get cultured and there's no bladder infection, right? And so, you know, it's often they're put on antibiotics anyway because they don't know what else to do with them. But they get into these cyclical sort of pain patterns. So pelvic pain is really a complex structure that almost always involves the muscles. And treating the muscles in chronic pelvic pain can be a, a great way of calming down the organs as well. I know I have had some patients who come in and they're on antibiotics for chronic bladder infections. Right. Is that someone who should be really screened for? They have a pelvic floor yeah. problem. They have a pelvic floor problem. They're really, I mean, I'm not a urologist, okay? But I have to question at this point, is there really such a thing as a chronic bladder infection, right? They feel like they have one, so they're mm -hmm. treated for one. Most of them have some blood in their urine because their bladder at that point is inflamed and irritated. And some of them will have some white blood cells, but they don't culture an infection. And yet they're put on antibiotics because they don't know what else to do with these women. And men, it can happen in men. It tends to happen in men with their prostate. They're called chronic prostatitis, right? And But it's not an inflammatory problem or an infectious problem. Is there anything that you would like potential patients to know? Yeah, I mean, I guess one of the things that I would like potential patients to know is that although it seems really invasive, this concept of doing some work internal in the pelvic floor, either vaginally or rectally, that pelvic floor physiotherapists are professionally trained and very respectful, and it's not as scary as it seems. I would say that that's the majority of the comments that I get from my patients, especially after the first time, is like, oh, okay, I was really afraid that that was gonna be awful, and that was actually fine. It's much more comfortable in your PAP exam. We're not using any instrumentation, going very slowly and very gently. But just to really recognize, I guess I wish I'd brought my pelvic model with me and I could show you, but just to really recognize that there is a rich amount of muscles inside our pelvis and nerves that do a really great job for us day in and day out without us even thinking about it. We take them for granted until they don't work, those muscles. And just like any other muscle care that you might do anywhere else in your body, these muscles need some work as well. Okay. And... In becoming a pelvic health physio, yep. what training is involved? Okay, that's a great question. Um, so right now, there are no master's programs in Canada that actually train uh, students before they graduate to do internal work. There are some electives that, that they can take, but you have to do a post-grad course in at least uh, level one, we call it, which is just learning about incontinence, male and female. At Public Health Solutions, we actually do an exam at the end where you have to examine one of our TAs or one of the, the instructors, and you have to pass that exam in order to then be able to roster with the college. So again, rostering with the college means it's a protected act. You can only do put your finger past the opening um, of the vagina or the anus once you've been trained. So unfortunately, there are very few patients that you're going to see that are pure incontinent. Okay, it almost always is more of a complex web 
And so you would go on from doing incontinence to, to learning about pain, to learning how to treat the pain manually, the, the pelvic floor muscles, but also to treat central sensitization because central sensitization is a huge component in pelvic pain. And then there are courses that go on and talk about pregnancy, pelvic girdle pain, you know, rectal dysfunction. So again, fecal incontinence, but also irritable bowel syndrome, those sorts of things. Um, we do a lot of work training on trauma and sexual function and how to talk to our patients and how to restore sexual function. Remember, sex is an ADL, right? It's an activity of daily living. It's normal. We all have sex. It's part of our chemistry, just like eating and drinking. If you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it's right in that bottom part of our basic physiological needs. Food, water, breathing, sex, bowel elimination, bladder elimination. That's all about the pelvic floor. If your pelvic floor is not working well, you, you will not feel safe, you will not have self-esteem, you will not feel a good sense of belonging, you will not be able to self-actualize if we kind of look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So that was sort of a, an education piece, but, <laughs> but yeah, so it's quite uh, comprehensive, but it starts with level one. And are your courses open to any healthcare providers or only physio? So you have to be able to uh, have within your scope of practice the ability to do an internal exam. We do actually have a non-internal course. So we do teach orthopedic therapists all kinds of strategies to ask good questions about pelvic floor function, to treat pelvic floor function externally, to know when to refer them to an internal pelvic floor therapist. So those courses are available. Naturopaths, physiotherapists, nurses are generally the ones that take our internal courses. Chiropractors have the ability to actually manipulate the tailbone, but they can't touch anything on the way from the opening to the tailbone, so they're not allowed to treat the muscles, which is interesting, but that's kind of where their college is at at this point. So really, as physiotherapists, because nurses can be great, and I've trained some fabulous nurses, and particularly nurse practitioners, midwives as well, but they don't have a rehab focus. They don't understand rehabilitation principles. So physiotherapists, we kind of own this area. We really do. And we need to recognize that we either need to take these muscles back and integrate them into the body and into the whole person. We have to stop isolating them. I've stopped calling myself a pelvic health physiotherapist and I'm going back to, I'm a physiotherapist. I treat the pelvic floor, but I think all orthopedic therapists should treat the pelvic floor. At least my goal would be before I retire, it's a long time from now, but before I retire that I would love to see in our master's programs that every physiotherapy student gets an opportunity to do internal exams on a model patient, right? On a simulated patient, not on each other as classmates. The med students don't have to do that either and neither should we. But if we all had an opportunity to feel what a tight pelvic floor felt like, what a weak pelvic floor felt like, to really be educated in how that plays out in the person as a whole, then I think we would do a better job as physiotherapists rehabilitating our patients, whether they have pelvic floor problems or low back problems or hip problems or neck problems, right? It's just part of the body. How many male therapists go through your training? Hmm. So we've had a, probably a handful, I would say. Um, so yeah, probably about a half dozen. Uh, not, you know, definitely much less than female, but we have some men who are out there doing pelvic floor physiotherapy, some just on male patients. I ha we have a couple that, that treat women. So it really depends, again, on your comfort level and, again, your assessment as a male physiotherapist around risk management, I think, is sort of the biggest concern. And where can people find out more about you? 
Uh, so probably best way is just to go to Public Health Solutions, and certainly uh, my contact information is there if they want some more information about me specifically. There's a listing on Public Health Solutions of public health therapists that have been trained and sort of their, their different um, levels of training that they have. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to Functional First Podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, please give us a rating on the iTunes store and stay tuned each month for a new episode.